You have questions? We have answers. We're two Southern moms on the backside of raising kids. And we have some things to say. We've lived life, made mistakes, and learned some lessons. Join us for answers to the questions you just want to ask your mom. Welcome to another Just Ask Your Mom podcast. I'm Bonnie Blaylock. And I'm Renee Sproles. And first, we're going to give you a what's up for the day. Um, today is German World Children's Day, mm. National Pepperoni Pizza Day, Yum. National Punch Day. I don't know if that's a drink or like an action, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, National Queso Day. Yeah. And respect for the aged. Oh, good. Day. I feel so Yeah, wrong. I know. I that would be us. I'm pretty sure. And also just for those who are listening, we're currently having the remnants of Hurricane Ida right overhead. So this is serious dedication. We're basically the Jim Cantori of podcasters. We are I right now. Say, it's yeah. storming. We're in our <laughs> raincoats that are up to 30 or three, 300 mile 300 per hour winds. winds. Yeah, yeah. Just imagine us yeah. doing that. So, no problem. No problem. Dedication. <laughs> anyway, so today... Um, I, I, Renee and I have been talking about this topic for a while and back in around 2018, I happened to see this interview on today with Megan Kelly and she was doing a segment called mommy burnout. Um, and she was talking with three moms in their thirties and forties, and they were kind of eager to start this conversation about moms and alcohol because they kind of all three had some cringy experiences. So I normally don't watch that show, but I paused because um, it was giving voice to something that I had sort of begun seeing. And unless you live under a rock, you've probably seen it too. And there's merchandising, memes, movies, all of them kind of joking about mommy juice or mommy sippy cup. And those jokes work like all humor does because they sort of touch on a trend. There's been a sharp rise in alcohol consumption in women and moms in particular. Yeah, so let me read you a little excerpt here. Here's a description from one mom. I lived for the nightly glass of wine. All the moms were doing it. Well, at least that's what those cute little wooden signs in every store said. They whine, I whine. You're the reason I drink. Mommy's sippy cup. These slogans were my lifeline. I mean, if people were making hand-painted tea towels about drinking and parenting, then selling them in high-end boutiques owned by chic women, how bad could it be? The signs, t-shirts, online memes, and hilarious blogs took away any ounce of guilt that I may have associated with carrying a baby in one hand and a wine glass in the other. And the author of those words is our guest today on our podcast, Samantha Perkins. Welcome. Hi, Hi. thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation. Such an interesting, interesting book. I want to introduce you to our listeners and then we'll just jump in. So Samantha is the author of Alive AF. Yes, you heard that right. One Anxious Mom's Journey to Becoming Alcohol-Free. <laughs> Clever, Samantha. <laughs> Samantha's passionate about sharing her anxiety remedies and universal truths she's discovered about living without alcohol. She chronicles her life on the blog, Alive AF, Alcohol-Free, which inspired the book. She is especially interested in uncovering the ubiquitous role that alcohol plays in our everyday lives, in everything from parenting, mental health, relationships, and career choices. Samantha hosts wellness retreats, leads an online sober book club, and helps women, especially mothers, rethink their relationship with alcohol. We um, we have a sober book club. Yeah, We've we been do. doing that for years. I never really thought about it. Yes, we do. <laughs> so welcome, Samantha. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, your book walks through your relationship with alcohol. 
growing up and through college all the way into your marriage and becoming a mom. So tell us a little bit about the role that alcohol played in your life in those years. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. And I mentioned this in the book. Growing up, I knew and had always heard messages about how bad drugs were. You know, my parents talked about it. I had um, classes around it at school. You know, we had a DARE officer, which was like a drug um, prevention program back in the 80s when I was in elementary school, who would come and talk about drugs and how bad they are and how you can't do them. And if you do, all these horrible things will happen. You know, and I really took those things to heart. I'm a type A personality. I like to follow the rules. And so, you know, I wanted (laughs) wanted to make sure to do the right thing. Um, And looking back, I realized that none of those conversations, not from my family or from TV shows or movies that I watched or anything that I heard in school ever mentioned alcohol in that category. Um, And so, you know, I um, come from a family who you would probably call casual drinkers, you know, that my mom rarely ever drank and my dad drank around holidays or, um, you know, special occasions and things like that. And um, when I graduated from high school, I went to the University of Kentucky and drinking was a big thing there, Um, you know, just on campus and um, having the freedom of being, a, you know, uh, away from my home and just doing it, being able to do whatever I wanted to. Um, and, you know, drinking was a big part of what everybody did. It seemed totally normal. You know, I didn't hang out with people who were doing drugs in a dark basement. We were drinking at bars and hanging out in social clubs. And, um I didn't have to hide it. It wasn't, you know, once I turned 21, it wasn't taboo to do those things. And so, you know, I kept um, what I thought was a very normal relationship with alcohol. And then, you know, the older I got, the more I'd say sophisticated it became. You know, I can remember we went on a trip to California and we visited wineries. And the next thing I know, I'm no longer drinking a bucket of Bud Light at the at the football game, but I'm drinking a glass of wine, you know. Um, and then once I became a mom, it really shifted into this like thing instead of having fun and being like a uh, a thing that you do on the weekends to hang out with your friends to this like um, way to unwind or relax or relieve the stress of parenting and all the things that kind of came at me over the course of the day. And I didn't notice that shift um, right away. It took time for me to realize like that this is something that I'm really relying on as a coping mechanism versus um, using to have a good time or just casually drink. So you have, you have two children, is that right? Yes. They're how old? They're um, eight and six. Okay. And at the time you were kind of realizing this and shortly after you wrote your book, they were how old? Uh, well, this, I stopped drinking when they were one and three. One and three, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but I had become a stay-at-home mom. I quit my job, which was, um, I worked in community mental health. So it was a kind of fast-paced job with um, a lot of need for me. And I was staying at home with them. And um, it was just a really tough transition. And I was so alone and so isolated. And just the days. No, yeah. it's always that way. It's just so hard. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So hard. Yeah. So isolating. We were just talking about that beforehand. Like that, this model is not working. The, like mm-hmm. nuclear family in a house. Like, okay, I don't want to live with my brothers and their wives. Like, don't get me wrong. But like, there's got to be a better way. Yeah. Some right. Some extra support. Because it's, it, I had the same reaction. Like I wanted to stay home with my children. I, I mean, I wanted to, but then when I did it, I thought, 
oh no, this is terrible. (laughs) It's so awful. And like, I felt like my brain was like slowly dying. I had no interaction with someone who could speak sentences. Yeah. And that, yeah, the anxiety creeps up, the depression sneaks in. It's like not, it's it's not easy. It's not Mm -hmm. (laughs) understatement. Yeah. Yeah. So Samantha, your book kind of walks, um, separates drinkers into three different categories. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think that for most of my life, I believe that there was, you know, alcoholics who had just lived this horrible, you know, had this horrible situation and, you know, just came to the most awful of rock bottoms, you know, and then they ended up having to go to AA or rehab or treatment um, to casual drinkers who never had a single problem, you know, just perfectly drink rarely a hangover, you know, no real issues from it. Um, And then just people who abstained from alcohol, you know, the people who never drank to begin with. Um, And so that's kind of the only three categories that I ever saw anybody in. Um, But I think I'm realizing now that that's really not the case. Right. Um, One thing that surprised me looking at this is that one third of Americans are actually abstainers or the non-drinkers. I thought that was kind of a large, that was way larger than I expected. Way more than I expected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think um, sobriety is sometimes stigmatized, weirdly. So they don't speak up. <laughs> you don't volunteer. Oh that, yeah, you don't really just say anything. Right. And you talk about that in your book, how like when you mentioned it to people that you were going to stop drinking, like it was a conversation killer or like weird <laughs> looks or they thought you were an alcoholic. And Yes, a lot uh, of misconceptions for sure. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So that weird category in between that you don't really know what to do with, um, some people have called gray area drinking. Mm-hmm. There's a, um, a great account on Instagram from Jolene Park. Mm-hmm. Um, she talks about gray area drinking. And so what would you say that that is? I think this is just the kind of a lot of people fall into this category where you might not be clinically addicted, but where alcohol is causing problems in your life. You know, um, first of all, alcohol, I didn't learn about in my drug prevention program is really dangerous. Um, it's super addictive. It has a lot of, um, things that it causes a lot of harm. It can cause cancer. Um, it disrupts your sleep. It messes with your hormones. It totally makes your chemicals in your brain all out of whack. So it's not the greatest thing um, to deal with stress. And so, um, you know, I think that people don't realize that some of our problems, our health issues can be caused by just our, this casual gray area drinking, which doesn't mean that, you know, you've gotten into your car and had an accident and you've gotten a DUI or you've been arrested. Um, but you wake up, every day, you have a dry mouth, maybe you're slightly hungover, um, and you're foggy headed and the the kind of choices that it leads to throughout the rest of the day. And how, you know, having living like that can be kind of problematic, it can be um, hard on your um, emotions and your mood and your just general state of mind. You mentioned in the book, um, that, you know, you were drinking, um, at least in part to, um, kind of help with the anxiety you were Mm -hmm. feeling, but then you discovered in your research that it can actually exacerbate anxiety, which I found fascinating because when I was like 30-ish and found myself in the doctor's office going like, I hate my life. And (laughs) um, he was like, you need counseling and um, you need to exercise and you need to drink a glass of red wine every evening. Mm-hmm. And I thought when I was reading your book, I thought about that. I thought, wow, I think some doctors like that's a pretty dangerous prescription, that third mm-hmm. part, because he didn't know 
if I could become addicted to it. I mean, I have um, an uncle who is an alcoholic. And so it's definitely in my, you know, family history, like, wow. Um, I, I was surprised, I guess, that my doctor would, would say that. Yeah. And I think that is just the general kind of misconception all around. And I've been talking about this a lot lately with everything that's going on in the world. Um, People really turn to like this, to alcohol to help us cope or to bring down our stress levels. But scientifically, it does the absolute opposite of that. So you drink um, and at first your body is like, woo, this is great. You know, Um, you start to feel good. You feel loosened up. But when you put a chemical like that into your body, Um, your body is going to try to fight against it. It's not normal to have that type of drug into your body. So once the alcohol starts to leave, your body's like, whoa, you know, SOS, this isn't what's supposed to be happening. We got to rid ourselves of this chemical. And in order to do that, it will actually um, increase the levels of cortisol and adrenaline, which is a stress hormone. Um, And so that is just like the basics. This is, has nothing to do if you're, if you, that, this isn't for alcoholics. This is just your one glass of wine. Um, and so even just a little bit of cortisol can increase our stress levels. And it's this huge misconception that alcohol is going to, you know, everybody says I need a drink, you know, after a long, hard day. And the reality is it just doesn't do that. And for someone who suffered with anxiety my whole life, I was just shocked to discover that I'm actually drinking stress you know <laughs> oh that's a good way to say it. It. truth bomb number one <laughs> yes. oh my think of it that way it doesn't seem so happy anymore i know no. drinking yeah. stress <laughs> ah! so i read this really interesting article came out uh june july in the atlantic um by kate julian and she's the senior editor of the atlantic um and it kind of laid out the history of drinking in america which i didn't know thought was fascinating um basically on the way to America on the Mayflower, they were, they didn't drink water because they thought it was unsafe. So they had kegs of beer and ale and whatever, and their supplies are running low. They thought we're not going to have enough to make it back to England. Let's just park here and, um, kick the, kick the pilgrims off. Um, so they did, that's why they landed in Plymouth Rock is because they didn't have enough beer to get back to England. Um, which is like, yikes. So ever since then, um, we've sort of done this pendulum swing between excess and abstinence in our country. Mm-hmm. Um, like way up in the seventies and eighties, we had um, an, a really big upswing in drinking. And then I remember the mothers against drunk driving programs yep. and when fetal alcohol syndrome started to come to the forefront. And um, so drinking began to decline in the eighties and nineties. And I thought it was super interesting that the most popular sitcom of the eighties was set in a bar yeah cheers Cheers. and the most popular sitcom of the 90s was set in a coffee shop which would be friends Friends. right (laughs) so i think now um we're kind of in another upswing so from 1999 to 2017 alcohol related deaths in the u.s have doubled to 70,000 plus a year and it's now what they call a leading driver in the decline of american life expectancy which was that's shocking shocking and surprising and and kind of something that's a choice yeah so that I that is crazy to me um also Bonnie I did like a little bit of research on um, how alcohol is metabolized in women because um yeah in Samantha's book I was like I, I didn't realize it was that bad for you you know I, I just didn't and so mm-hmm. 
I've, I mean, I've actually talked to my doctor about this. I'm like, why can men drink so much more than women? Is it just because they're bigger than us? Right. And he's like, no, he's like, it's not because they weigh more. It's your body composition. So we have a higher ratio of fat to water. Thank you, God, for that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And so (laughs) we have a higher blood alcohol concentration after one drink than a man does. And um, this was weird to me that even when we're metabolizing our alcohol, the first passage through our liver, it's 23% the efficiency of men in metabolizing alcohol. So it's it's just harder on our bodies Mm. all around. And I was very surprised at that. Um, so, okay, here's what we all want to know, Samantha. Are we drinking too much? How much are other people drinking? Is alcohol actually that bad? You've convinced me alcohol's bad. It's bad for you. <laughs> like, I, 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 you know, it's like choosing, am I going to drink my stress tonight? I don't know. I'll be, yeah. that'll be rolling in my head. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> but, um, but I mean, do you, what your, what's your experience? Do you think we're drinking too much? Okay. I, that's such a great question. And I love talking about this because, well, I think first of all, we were confused as a culture around kind of the dangers of alcohol and how, how it affects our bodies. And I love what you're saying about how it affects women in particular, because I think we are really um, bearing the burden of the world uh, on our shoulders. And there's just so much um, that so many factors that make us want to drink, but we don't realize how hard it is on ourselves. Um, and so I think what I always try to do is teach people to assess is this alcohol that I'm drinking really contributing to my life? You know, um, I talk to people about, you know, if it were hot dogs, you know, would you really go to a party and have five hot dogs? Probably not. <laughs> that we we think that because we can, we should, and that it's going to add so much value. You, and you called it in the book, you didn't say hot dogs, you said candy bars. And I was like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) would you, you have three candy bars, you know, at a party. Oh, gross. No, (laughs) but it's so many calories too. forget that all the worst things that it does Mm -hmm. to you. Like just drinking all those calories is, is also, um, really bad, but, but you're right. It is, um, it's just ubiquitous. It's just what we do. Mm-hmm. Except we didn't. Like I grew up in a house that didn't. Like we were the one third abstainers. Mm-hmm. Like I never was around alcohol. I didn't really even drink. I told my kids they drove me to drink because that was my doctor's prescription. <laughs> was drink a glass of red wine. I never even experimented with alcohol. I just simply started in the midst of a life crisis. Wow. So um, it, it's even ubiquitous. Um, as I said, just even for medical professionals, I think they're not seeing it as dangerous as it is. Right. We're not counting the cost. Like you said, yeah. if you don't really know what you're dealing with and they're yeah. not bothering to get like a history or right. mental health factoring yeah. into that, then maybe, you should, maybe that's not the best prescription. So, and why, like, why do you think women are drinking so much in particular, Samantha? Okay. So I think with, um, moms in particular, it's really hard for us to find things that we have in common because everyone has a different parenting style and it's super stressful. You know, we have so much on our plate and it seems like we might not agree on whether or not to homeschool or send your kid to private or public school, but at least we can have a glass of wine to pull us together and to connect. I think we're so starved for authentic connection. And I think we're so, um, um, 
lonely and isolated in our decision-making that it seems like we might not be able to agree, but at least we can, you know, drink together. That's the one thing that we can agree on and we can be together. And um, I think that the other thing is just that over the last, you know, 20 years, the marketing has really begun to target women. You know, when you go into the uh, liquor stores now, you'll see, you know, bottles that are made to look like high heels and they taste like, you know, vodka that tastes like marshmallows and, you know, skinny black dresses, um, you know, that, that talk to you about, you know, all of this, like, um, you know, marketing that really appeals to women. Um, And in addition, Everywhere you turn, you know, with all of this wellness talk, you'll find, you know, recipes for, you know, margaritas that are low in calorie and, uh, you know, healthcare clinics and yoga classes, they're all followed up with wine and alcohol. And so we're really kind of marketing this to each other and we're targeted um, because it sells, you know, we, um, we, we just continue to buy this and not realize that the havoc that it's having on the bodies. I think women in particular um, are drinking more. You said bring us together to connect, but I've read that there's something about drinking more alone as yeah. well. Um, so there's a disconnect there as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, I, I loved your your perspective on that too. In the book, that if I can read a quote from the book yeah. where you where you said you when you started to drink at home, like. Um, it was a whole different experience. And I think this was going to ring true for a lot of people. You said the idea of drinking at home felt scandalous to me. I had never done this and I loved it. It was the equivalent of curling up with a blanket on a cold afternoon, drinking in the comfort of your own home, wearing your pajamas and having no social expectations was the greatest thing ever. And since we were still going to bed at a reasonable hour and getting up early in the morning, I saw this as responsible. I think you're probably not the only one. I think there's probably a lot. Yeah. Yeah. People um, justifying the drinking. Um, It's more economical. It's, yeah, it's cozy. It's responsible. You're not driving anywhere. Right. And I think with COVID, it's gotten even worse, you know, because now we've, you can have alcohol literally delivered to your door, um, you know, with your fast food that you ordered as well. And um, I think that, again, people don't realize how addictive this is, regardless of if you have a predisposition to alcohol, once you start drinking and the chemicals kind of um, are in, in, in your body, you're gonna want more and more over time. And so it really does, um, you know, every TV show that we watch, it seems like there's a glass or bottle sitting on the table or, you know, it, it just, there's a lot of marketing going into women and drinking. And I think it's, it's making it hard for people to assess whether or not, you know, it's really good for them or if that's something that they want to do because not drinking feels too isolating and hard. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think you mentioned in your book too, it's not the advertising never includes a drunk person, Mm-mm. never includes even somebody who's a little bit tipsy or problems of any kind. Or anyone right. with belly fat. It's all, yeah, yeah, they're all beautiful, <laughs> happy people. And it's, um, yeah, not, and not necessarily with kids either. Mm-mm. Right. Yeah. And Bonnie was saying like in all the articles and things that she's read, like that kids universally say they like their moms and dads better when they're not drinking, that they're more present and available to them. Did you, did your kids notice Samantha? Did you, do you think they know, were you thinking that they did notice at the time? Well, they were very young and I, for the first 
long time told myself that they didn't notice they were too little. Um, but you know, when I woke up the morning after drinking, I didn't always feel so great and spending the day with them with a slight hangover or thinking about when I could finally approach happy hour and, you know, numb myself from them didn't make me the best mom. So I was more irritable and maybe sometimes snappy with them and wasn't always present with them. Um, and so I'd like to say that, no, they didn't notice, but yeah, they did. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm a much better mom when I'm not drinking or thinking about drinking than I was. Um, and now it's a conversation that we have regularly in our home. And my husband um, also recently stopped drinking. And, you know, we tell the kids about it all the time because alcohol is so dangerous, if not more so than other drugs like cocaine and marijuana. It kills 88,000 people per year where um you know, the next drug in line is only 77,000. And so I always tell my, we always talk about, would we sit around and do drugs in front of the kids? Never, you know, so why would we think it'd be normal for us to drink in front of them and, you know, be altered by that? Um, and again, it's, you know, not to, to say that, you know, every parent drinking in front of their kids is, you know, causing them long-term damage, but do, kids do notice it's, it's for sure. And I've had conversations with friends who can remember times that their mom got drunk and, you know, said something silly or embarrassed them. And, you know, it's not cool. Kids don't like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I was reading this book um, this year called The Addiction Inoculations by Jessica Leahy. Um, she was an alcoholic or is an alcoholic and um, a researcher as well in behaviors. Um, she works with a lot of children and she's done the same thing as you have and opened up the conversation in her own house. Um, but she says that the children's perception of alcohol norms, like habits, frequency of use, come from chiefly observing their parents begins at a very early age. And then one say children as young as three could identify alcoholic beverages and photographs, which I thought was really interesting. So mm -hmm. they know, I mean, even if you're putting it in a cute little mommy yeah. sippy cup thing, yeah. they know it's something different. Right. Okay. Here, here's the thing. I grew up in a house where no one drank. I never saw anyone drink. And then I heard, I guess in my twenties that like modeling responsible drinking, like keeps your children from like going overboard. So, but I mean, I didn't go overboard, but I'm a first child. I'd, I'd probably obey the rules anyway. <laughs> but like, like, do you think about that with your kids, Samantha? Like, okay, I'm not modeling responsible drinking. So what are they going to do when they grow up and... I think that's great. Like, I have no expectation that they'll, you know, abstain from all, you know, from making bad choices. But I just... For me personally and in our house, we don't want to make alcohol any sound any better than or safer than any other drugs, just based on the research and what it's done and information that we're gathering. It's kind of like, you know, when you know more, um, you, you do better. And I think, you know, my parents didn't realize how bad alcohol was. There was a long time ago when no one knew how bad cigarettes were. And I kind of equate that, you know, um, now we know how bad they are and people can make the decision about smoking in full knowledge. And I think that's what the problem is with alcohol. We, um, there aren't any um, labels. There's no proper labeling, letting people know the dangers of this. And so, you know, we're just going to make sure that they know that alcohol's bad, cocaine's bad, you know, the, and, and the things that can, that can happen if you consume those things. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. Comparing it to smoking in high school in the eighties, like we would never, I, I would never have smoked. Like there's no possible way. 
but there were lots of people who would experiment with alcohol. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you do. We need a good campaign. Get on that, Samantha. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> well, we did that once. Remember the prohibition? That didn't work so yeah, well. Yeah. Right, right. You have, to, you have to still have free will in there. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but that is, that is um, just an interesting way of thinking about training up your children. I think that's really going to be really helpful for our listeners to think about, okay, let's arm ourselves with some information here and some good science that we can help just our children understand what that is and how our culture views that right um, as part of our everyday lives mm-hmm. yeah knowledge is power That's yes good. yeah so um okay I want to talk about the comparison game because I think that is like women do this all the time in everything yeah. and so the um chat I loved your chapter well first of all I loved your whole book because it sounded like they were just snuggled up on the couch with you and <laughs> having a conversation <laughs> very chatty and bantery I loved it thank you so, so um in the chapter on thank god for other people's hangovers you said I started thinking about all the people I knew in my life and on the rare occasion I did cross paths with someone who no longer drank I automatically assumed they had a dark history and were silently and anonymously wrangling with their demons I would place that person in the category of those that can't drink while I stayed safely in my group of those who can drink. I felt reassured and maybe even a little relieved when they would confirm my beliefs with a drinking story about something I hadn't done, like getting a DUI or drinking and snorting cocaine or or drinking and leaving their kids home alone. I would think to myself, check, that's it. There it is. There's the one thing they did that makes them different from me. I'm still safe to continue drinking. Talk to me about the comparison game. Yeah, I think I spent a long time knowing that alcohol was becoming a lot less fun and it wasn't, you know, doing for me what it used to do back in the day, but I still was just so um, stuck in the idea that, well, I'm not an alcoholic, so I just can keep continuing to drink. You know, it never occurred to me to think about alcohol in the way that people think about, you know, carbs or gluten or sugar, you know, and and assess whether or not it's good for me and my body and if it's working. Um, And so I constantly was thinking when I would be out around people, you know, like, oh, we're drinking the same amount, you know, so-and-so had three drinks and I had three drinks. I'm great. You know, um, not once considering so-and-so size or how her body might metabolize the alcohol versus how mine does versus, you know, her mental health status versus my mental health status. Um, and so I constantly was comparing my drinking to, you know, whether or not it was more or less than this person who I deemed either as being making the right choice or making a wrong choice, you know? Um, and that just really led me astray. It was not the best way <laughs> to, to determine whether or not, you know, this was having an impact on me. Um, but I do think it is like a tool that we use um, for kind of like our guiding principles, which isn't necessarily going to be the best thing. Right. I think it's so interesting that we do that in so many levels, like you were saying, Renee, and like, what are we waiting for? Are we waiting for the rock bottom? Yes. <laughs> to say like, okay, now I've hit it. Why do we have to wait until that happens? Like before we say, okay, wait up, pull, pull back a little bit. Yeah. Right. Later. Yeah. So talk to us about how you made that shift then, how you decided, um, you kind of just got curious about your own self and yeah. kind of, instead of comparing yourself to other people, you just kind of took a look inside. 
Yeah. And I had kind of my own personal rock bottom, which is a, I always say it's like a story about a non-story and that's why I tell it because I want people to know, you know, it was just kind of like, I had a rough weekend. I had a little too much to drink and I had a hangover and I was spending my time Googling, you know, am I an alcoholic? Do I have a drinking problem? <laughs> you know, waiting, like you said, for that, you know, information to pop up that said exactly what, you know, who I was. Um, but I came upon, upon somebody, a girl who was talking about alcohol and the way that I now think about it. And she was saying, you know, you're asking their own question. That's, you know, not what you should be asking. You know, do you like waking up in the middle of the night with a dry mouth? And do you like having a headache in the morning? And do you like feeling out of control at times, you know, feeling tipsy or not being able, being able to remember, you know, and then I was like, no, you know, I don't like those things. I, I don't like that. And then I was able to start to stop caring so much about other people and really just thinking about myself and, and really having some confidence to know that it's okay for me to address this. You know, I was so worried that once I stopped drinking, people were going to think I was an alcoholic. And that's essentially what happened because that's how we view it as a culture. No one, not once did anyone ever say to me, Oh man, that's really stinks that you don't feel good today after drinking last night. You know, people were just always like, Oh, ha ha, you know, that, yeah, we drank too much and now we don't feel good. Almost like a rite of passage. And right. you want that, you see that all the time. I, I want the friend that's holding my hair back. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Over the toilet. Do I know? Do I want right. it? I'm going to tell you, I would not be there for that bond. <laughs> I feel bad about you, so I'm good. We're good. <laughs> oh, okay. So did it cause some stress in your marriage? Because in the book, I mean, you just told us now your husband stopped drinking, but when you wrote the book, he, he had, was still drinking. I'm not Correct. heavily, I mean, you didn't say he was drinking heavily. You just said, you decide not to drink. He was still going to drink. Was that a problem? Um, actually it wasn't. And I, people ask me this all the time, especially if you're used to drinking with your partner, you know, if you guys, if that's something that you do and it was something that we did. Um, but I, I think when it, it becomes a problem for other people, when they try to get the partner to do what they're doing. And I had tried that before. I'd be like, Hey, let's go on a two week cleanse and let's not drink <laughs> together for two weeks, you know? Um, and then, you know, after the end of two weeks, we would just end up drinking more because we were so fatigued, <laughs> starved. <laughs> yeah. So when I decided to do this, I knew um, just based on our relationship, I'm not going to, I can't worry about what he's doing. I've got to do this on my own, you know? And um, so I think from the get go, I knew that it was going to just be something that I was going to focus on. And I just had to tell him, look, I'm sorry, but this is something I'm wrangling with right now. And it did change what we did on a Friday night and our relationship with, you know, friends at times. Um, and, you know, I'm almost, it's been four years for me and he's just been not drinking for a few months. And it's funny cause he's coming around to these ideas now. Um, and he realizes, you know, or he's just seeing some of the things that I've been talking about, but it's, he's doing it all on his own terms, which is how I think it should be. You know, it's hard to, it's great to have support, but you don't always need to be doing the same thing all the time. I agree. Yeah. That's a, that's just a recipe for harmony in a relationship, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, in a marriage where you're just, you're not um, insisting on the other person. Like I can't want it more than you want it. That's right. Mm -hmm. Fill in the blank on whatever it is that's right. in life. And so that's really wise and that you can yes. navigate that in that way. Um, that's cool. I, I um, think it's interesting, this whole concept of getting curious. We talk about this a lot, knowing yourself, like know your temperament, know your personality, know mm -hmm. your inclinations, all the, all the things. I think self-awareness is the key to a lot in life. Mm -hmm. um, 
But I think as women in particular, maybe I'm wrong about this, instead of getting curious, we have to tack on that judgmental part on top mm. of it too. So, okay, yeah, maybe I don't like what I'm doing. Well, that's because I'm a sucky person and a terrible mom, you know? Mm-hmm. And we, we always have to tack on that negative mm-hmm. on top. Did you have any of that? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I thought that, you know, once I started getting curious, I'm like, oh no, no, you know, I would like open the door a little bit and then I would slam it shut and run across the room because I didn't want to face these things about myself, you know? And then, um, yeah, the guilt that comes with that, like if I admit that I'm drinking too much, oh my gosh, you know, like I've been saying that I'm drinking because of my kids and because of the stress and that's how I've justified it. But if I, admit that it was too much, then, you know, the, the guilt will, you know, just kill me thinking about, you know, not being there for them and just being, um, you know, not, not a wonderful, you know, role model and all of those things. So yeah, it took me a long time to open the door wide and walk through it versus, uh, you know, and being able to deal with the judgments that I have and, you know, still have. And, you know, I, I go through those things even today, you know, feeling guilty about things that I've done as a parent, you know, just, without the alcohol. So, so, you know, I, yeah. Yeah. But it's not, uh, we can apply this to anything, not just alcohol. That's what I like about this yeah. is that you you can get curious about any behavior that mm-hmm. you know, yes. you're, you're eating, you're shopping, you're um, just put something in the blank mm-hmm. and all of this still applies. Right. Oh, yeah, totally. And I thought it was really um, interesting that you noted that you can't selectively numb these feelings. So we get these bad feelings about ourselves. And like, I can't just numb like the, I'm a bad mom feeling with alcohol. Like when I use alcohol, then it's numbing all the, all the good feelings. They're Mm -hmm. less, they're less euphoric and Mm -hmm. the bad feelings, maybe yes, they're less bad. And um, you've described it as I didn't know it yet, but I had diluted my ability to connect to myself, to my family and to my life by pouring ethanol all over everything. <laughs> um, I would learn, thanks to Brene Brown, that you can't selectively numb. You can't numb anxiety and still feel joy. When you numb, you lessen your ability ability to feel. And there's actual science behind this. That's good if you don't want to feel anxiety, anger, and sadness or any other negative feelings. But it also means you won't able be able to feel joy, happiness, relief, and exhilaration. Do wow. we want that? Wow. Like, yeah. yeah. I mean, and here's the deal. Like when you have anxiety, which I have had in my whole, like probably adult life, it's like the, it's like this itch you can't scratch. And so I get why people want to numb it. It's a horrible feeling. It is. It really, really is. It's a horrible feeling. And, and, um, drinking that glass of wine was the easiest of the three things my doctor asked me to do. Yeah. Actually getting my butt to the YMCA (laughs) effort. (laughs) Yeah. And I say that even today, you know, because I'm still wrangled with anxiety. You know, it's nothing like it used to be, but I still have it. And there's no coping mechanism that works as quickly and as effectively as that, you know, first or second, you know, glass of wine. It just works really, really fast, but it's just not a long-term solution. And, you know, and what happens is having to rely on it again the next day and the next day and the next day, and then it's just becoming a crutch. But I agree with people and I get it because when you can take the edge off quickly, you know, with just this, you know, liquid out of your glass, it's very appealing. It is. I know. And I don't, I mean, let's talk about what getting curious about yourself. Like, I don't like that. I like to think that I would do the hard thing 
always do the hard thing and the virtuous <laughs> thing. And, you know, like we don't do it because it's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the last thing we pick because it's hard. So what, yeah. what did you start to do instead of turning to alcohol for anxiety? I think it's helpful just to realize like it's not ever going to go away. It might be harder in some parts of life. And we might be more anxious in some parts of life than others. I'm pretty chill right now. My kids are gone. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I mean, actually I did. I went to the doctor in May for my checkup and he's like, you are healthier than you were at 40. Oh, yeah, wow. You're 50. And he's like, it's, it's because you're less stressed. Yes. He's like, your life just has less stress in it. So yes. we just have to acknowledge we're going to have seasons of high anxiety. But what did mm-hmm. you do, Samantha? Well, once I took the option of drinking away, you know, if I had not replaced it with something else, it would have been, I would be back to drinking right away. So I want to just always be clear and remind people of that, like, you can't just take away the alcohol and then do the same thing night after night and expect to not just to feel better. So what I think I did was when I removed the alcohol, then I had room and space and time to try to develop and hone in on these other coping skills. So I, you know, started doing a little bit of meditation, which I still really stink at, but, you know, I, I see the benefits, you know, and I can, you know, use my breath a little bit more than I ever was able to before. And, um, I started reading a lot more because I had, you know, all this time on my hands. So instead of sitting there and drinking, I would, you know, go back to my bed and read books about people who had anxiety and learn other skills on how to, you know, cope with that. Um, therapy. I mean, it's a great thing. And once I stopped drinking, I realized, oh shoot, you know, I'm going to need some help with this. I can't do this on my own, you know? Um, so I started going to therapy and uh, using, you know, um, exercise and listening to podcasts. I mean, you know, just taking in information to help, I guess, um, take that, take away the habit or the need for the habit and try to rewire myself a little bit. Those are all great. Did you find any communal support? I did. So I say that, you know, my community, because I'm, I'm very introverted and I really went at this alone and now I would do it differently because I know how much community and support is out there. But at the time I didn't. Um, And I figured my only option was, you know, AA, which I didn't really feel like I qualified for. Um, So I, I latched on to like these sober bloggers and authors and I just read their words and their posts over and over again and really um, clung to their ideas and their idea of hope um, and and kind of went with that. And then later on, I really developed like a huge um, online support. There's tons of support on Instagram and Facebook and, you know, things that I didn't even know existed because I wasn't on those social media platforms, Instagram particularly, but there's tons of sober women support. There's sober mom groups. Um, there are um, just lots of different ways to get support and coaching around this kind of thing now. But um, at the time, I didn't know that those existed. That, that's great. Cool. Yeah. That's the, and one other thing you did in, um, in the book, I remember you, you would tell yourself, I'm not drinking today. Yes. That's so wise. That's oh, so yeah. wise. Instead of thinking like, I'm not drinking for the rest of my life ever. And <laughs> how many billions of days is that? Like, it seems overwhelming. No, it's just that I, that was a takeaway. I thought I'm going to use that like in my life, that whatever behavior I'm trying to change, I'm not fill in the blank today. Right. Yeah. Because when I started to think about, you know, 
what's coming up, you know, 4th of July weekend and so-and-so's wedding and, you know, that high school reunion. I mean, I was like, I'll never make it through. Um, and I, I, I don't think I, I said today, but I also said like, I'm not drinking right now, like in this moment, you know, and I would go to a party or a gathering. I mean, I was, I wasn't really going to parties at this time because I was, you know, taking care of little kids, but even then, you know, parents would gather and we would, you know, drink. And, you know, I would say to myself, I'm not drinking right now and I'm still having fun. I'm not drinking right now. And this is okay. I'm okay. I'm not drinking right now. And it's still just fine. I really like talking to this person and just reminding myself like the things that I like to do um, and how, you know, some of those things were still just as fun seeing the booze, you know? Right. It sounds like such a deprivation thing when you say, oh, well, I have to give up alcohol. Yes. I have to give up my mm-hmm. wine in the evening. It's mm-hmm. like, well, <laughs> well, I'm giving up everything. Like, yeah. Um, and what you said about replacing it with something else, I think is so helpful and so key that you're not just depriving yourself of things. You're saying yes to something else. Yes, 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 yes. I loved that you packed your purse full of LaCroix. Oh, yeah. One party. <laughs> <laughs> so clever because you like you're you've talked to people I've talked to people I'm sure we all have who've stopped smoking and they're used to that motion right yes. having the cigarette in their hand the motion with their hand and you were like huh this little can of LaCroix here is just like doing the trick <laughs> yeah oh yeah that and I ate a lot of sugar yeah I would just try to overindulge in sweets or treats for myself you know because I didn't want to approach this as you know living this life of deprivation and if I can't have wine I'm can't have anything else. So I just tried to kind of reward myself along the way with other things. Mm. So you weren't afraid of like, we, we could see you, this is an audio podcast, but you're trim slim lady. Like you weren't afraid of getting fat. Um, I wasn't, you know, and I actually, I did end up losing, um, a lot of weight, you know, at first because I mean, I drank a lot of beer as well and you know, that has a lot of calories. And so I think again, you know, three beers versus one, um, you know, piece of chocolate or, you know, a brownie wasn't the equivalent. And so I did, I ended up losing weight, but I know that some people don't. And so, you know, um, I wasn't focused on that. I I had to put that kind of stuff to the back burner in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow, three pieces of cake. That's a huge incentive. <laughs> yeah, I would do a lot for three pieces of cake. Oh my goodness. Um, so your your discovery, the whole title of your book, Alive AF, Alive Alcohol Free, um, is that being alcohol free made you more alive. So how? You know, I just say always that when I was drinking, it seemed like the thing that I was doing was drinking. You know, I was waiting all day for happy hour. Happy hour would come and, you know, we'd open up a bottle of whatever. And then we were drinking and then it was bad and that was it. And then the next day I didn't feel so great. And here I am again, waiting for happy hour. I was just really waiting a lot. Mm. And now, you know, I just first of all, I'm so free of ever having to think about drinking. I'm not wondering if they're going to have the thing that I like at the restaurant I'm going to, or if so-and-so is going to have beer or not, you know, and I'm just have all of this extra time and space because I'm not doing any waiting. If I want to have fun, you know, I do it in the middle of the day and it's not, nothing revolves around alcohol anymore. And so I feel just so much more able to really fully live into my life um, because there's not the, I'm not, I'm waiting to have a can or drink in my hand in order to do it. Everything feels worthy now versus before I'd only felt worthy if I was drinking while doing it. Um, and I just, you know, I wrote a book and I lead women's retreats and I, you know, all of these things just because I have all this extra time and space in my life. Um, and so it's really just, I could 
seriously start crying. And I've talked about this nonstop for four years <laughs> and I still get teared up because of how much more alive I feel than I've ever felt in my life. Cool. Yeah, so much more cool. Oh, yeah. That's awesome. So beautiful. There's my word. Yep. <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> it's just, it really is. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, it's it's so inspiring too, because it's brave to kind of look at your, take a deep look into yourself and um, see the things that you want to change. And it's, it's so brave to, to do it. I think as women, we need to be cheering each other on. Oh, for sure. And, yeah. And like, you go girl, like, Dig in and, and do the hard thing. Yeah. And, right. and applause. And yeah. if I'm not ready to do it, good for you that you are. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think going back to what you guys have been saying this whole time, it's really just about change and change is just so hard and helping people just know that, you know, you have, when you reach that point or that threshold of like, is it harder to stay the same or harder to change? You've got to kind of choose your hard, you know, and then just to go for it because I think we do feel um, just so scared and worried about what people are going to think of us and just all of the factors. But really, I mean, I'm just, this has led me into a life of trying a lot of new things, you know, and before I was just kind of stuck in my one way, you know, and so that's the most encouraging thing. And what I want people to know that, you know, again, replace the word alcohol with your thing that's holding you back from, you know, doing the thing that's going to make you feel better. Absolutely. And that could be, it could be anxiety, yeah. fear, it could be an emotion, Anything. just like yeah. push through. Yes. Be the you that you're supposed to be in your mental. Yes. Yeah. Yes. A good word. Choose your heart. Yes. Yeah. Hard to stay the same and it's hard to change. Choose your heart. Mm-hmm. Oh, so wise. It's great. You are just so fun. Oh, like, thank you. So are, so are you guys. I listened to so many of your podcasts um, leading up to this and I'm just, you guys are doing great work and it's awesome to hear you. you. I, I would love to just hang out at a retreat. That would be so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And check out Samantha's book, Alive AF, One Anxious Mom's Journey to Becoming Alcohol Free. It's well worth the read. You can, and you can just do it on a rainy Saturday afternoon. Yeah. It's a pretty quick yeah. read. Pretty yeah. quick, quick read, real accessible and we'll fun. A, we'll have definitely have a link on our website and on social media. You can find it at justaskyourmom.com, Facebook, Just Ask Your Mom, or Instagram at Just Ask Your Mom Podcast. And if you're listening, please rate and leave a review or comments. It just helps people find us. And always, always, we want your questions or topic ideas. Send them to justaskyourmompodcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next time on Just Ask Your Mom. Mom.